Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Afua Hirsch. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love Cleopatra. She is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. It's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. In 1568, conflict erupted just outside of Granada in southern Spain between the Moriscos and the Spanish crown, ruled by Philip II. Moriscos were former Muslims and their descendants, whom the Spanish crown had commanded in 1502 to convert to Christianity or face compulsory exile. The conflict developed into the Second Granada War, which lasted from 1568 to 70, The Moriscos were defeated and Philip II ordered that they be expelled from Granada and forced to assimilate into Catholic society in the rest of Castile, residing among the so-called Old Christians. But not all Moriscos were free to settle. Thousands were taken as prisoners of war and enslaved. That is until 1572, when Philip banned the capture and enslavement of one particular group, children. Why did Philip pass this decree, having originally permitted Morisco enslavement? What happened to those Morisco children who had been enslaved in the Granadan War? And how did Philip's subjects who owned enslaved Morisco children respond? To answer these questions and more, I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Stephanie Kavanagh, who is the Sir John Elliott Junior Research Fellow in Spanish History at Exeter College at the University of Oxford. She's currently preparing her first book, The Morisco Problem and the Politics of Conversion in Early Modern Spain, for publication. Dr. Kavanagh, welcome to Not Just the Tudors. I am excited to talk to you about this episode. And this whole story, I think, will be completely new to most people listening. It was new to me, and I thought I knew a bit about 16th century Spain. So thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm really delighted to be here. And I'm actually glad for the chance to share these stories with you. So let's start, perhaps, by thinking about the diversity of early modern Spain. I think we have a kind of an idea of it being a powerful Roman Catholic country. And yet, 
at the end of the 15th century, this is a place of diversity. There are Muslims, there are Jews. And then by the time we get into the 16th century, there are Protestants as well. So I wonder if we could think about the history of the Muslim presence in Spain. And if you could give a brief outline, perhaps, of that diversity which could bring us up to the Granadan War of 1568. Absolutely. Yeah, it's really important context to at least start the story of the Moriscos in the medieval period. And the medieval Iberian kingdoms, what's now Spain and Portugal, were a diverse place. We can think about Christians, Muslims and Jews, as you said, and eventually by the late medieval period of convert populations, of the descendants of those Jews who converted to Catholicism, known as conversos, and then the descendants of those Muslims who converted to Catholicism, known as Moriscos. And this is an important context, not only because of the diversity, but there's a long-standing Islamic presence in the Iberian kingdoms dating back to the year 711. And so by the time we get to the beginning of the 16th century with the history of the Moriscos, the majority of them, by the way, were converted under force beginning in the year 1502. So unlike the Jewish population, there were forced conversions, but there were many generations of forced converts from Judaism to Christianity. Most of the Moriscos are created, so to say, in the early 16th century, in 1502 in the lands of Castile, and in 1525-26 in the Kingdom of Aragon. It's not the end of Muslim Spain. 1492, the conquest of Granada, which is an event that leads up to the forced conversion of the Moriscos, is absolutely not the end of Muslim Spain. And this is one of the tricky questions about identity and about conversion that makes the Moriscos so interesting. They were baptized Catholics, integrated in many ways into early modern Spanish society, but also at the same time, many retained many of their former pre-conversion social and cultural traits. And there's a lot of suspicion during this period that many retained their allegiance to their former religion. So it's an interesting population to study. There's a huge amount of diversity in the Moriscos as well. I think that's another important thing to think of in terms of the context for these stories we're talking about today, is that there's a huge amount of regional diversity among Moriscos. Of course, diversity in individual belief. There's no one religious identity among the Moriscos. And I think earlier scholars were kind of wondering about this question of the true religious identity of Moriscos. Were they, in fact, as the Inquisition suspected, secret Muslims, political dissidents, insincere Catholics, were they, as some people avowed, sincere Catholics who had been Christians for many generations? Historians now, myself included, are much more interested in questions, as my book deals with, of how people were identified, how people identified themselves, and then in turn were identified by bodies of power, and much less about trying to pin down some slippery question of religious sincerity. Thinking about self-identification then, would a Morisco have referred to themselves as a Morisco, or is it a pejorative word? There's a lot of pejorative terms to refer to converted populations. And I was just having this conversation with a colleague the other day because we both use the term Morisco in our scholarship. It is a contemporary term that we find throughout the records of the 16th century. It's not the only term to refer to this population. A very common one was the term new Christians, nuevos convertidos. And new Christian encompasses also converts from Judaism called conversos. But oftentimes in the records, we find the word Morisco interspersed with other terms that refer to the geographical provenance of a population. So, for example, I focus on the royal city of Fairolid. The Moriscos who come from Granada are often called those from Granada. The local Morisco population are often referred to as Moriscos, but also those of the neighborhood where they lived, Los del Barrio de Santa Maria, Los Antiguos Mudejars, the former Muslims under Christian rule. So the terminology is quite varied. 
Morisco has assumed a neutral position in the scholarship. And I think myself and other scholars who leave room in our work to kind of really dive into what that terminology means, we also use Morisco as the shorthand to kind of ever be able to finish a sentence. <laughs> so yeah, in and of itself, it's not a slur of any kind, but it's certainly incomplete and leaves a lot of room actually for discussing these questions of identification. And I want to pick up on this idea that was held by many contemporaries. It seems that there's something sort of only outwardly compliant, this question about pinning down their true religious faith. Should we look to that to explain why fighting broke out in 1568? That's also a great question and a big question. The general brief timeline of events is that the monarchy issues a ban on so many aspects of Granadan Morisco culture, on the Arabic language, on their traditional forms of dress and bathing and naming of children. These forms of orders have been issued and attempted before by this time. It sticks at this point for many political reasons and basically is the root cause of a Morisco rebellion in the Kingdom of Granada. This leads to what's known as the Second Granadan War, which began in 1568 as a rebellion of the Moriscos in that kingdom and ultimately ends two years later, 1570, in a royal victory. So it does begin as a revolt. And by the time the war ends, the Spanish monarchy is already in the midst of this massive deportation. They respond to the rebellion of the Moriscos by deporting the Morisco population from the kingdom. And this is a massive forced relocation. Our best estimates is that 80,000 Moriscos are forced to leave the Kingdom of Granada in the south and they're relocated northward into Castile. Plans for that deportation and resettlement don't line up with what in fact happened. So if you read the royal correspondence and papers of the crown and state at that point, you can see that there was this idea that Moriscos could be relocated so that no more than one or two existed in every Christian town or city further north. And that, of course, becomes impossible. The deportation itself is an act of great violence. People die along the way. People are captured along the way, which is extremely pertinent to the story today. And by the time they're resettled, many of them suffer from ill health, from poverty, and from the fact that they've been separated from their families. This, of course, complicates the Morisco question in so many places across Castile, including Valladolid, the town that my book focuses on, because they're left to manage this population of deportees without sufficient structure to do so, while at the same time having local populations of Moriscos still living there. And this is a slight tangent, but it feels like such a change in attitudes. I mean, obviously, we can see this great sense of requiring the conversion of Muslims back from 1502. But if we go before that, if we ventured back into the 1480s or 1490s in Spain, we find not a perfect culture of living in toleration of each other. I'm not suggesting some sort of golden age, but we certainly find the adoption of elements of Morisco dress amongst the court. It feels like things have changed very dramatically over that 70-year period. Absolutely. And what you mentioned exists in the 16th century as well. I try to trace throughout the book that I've written, and this article you mentioned is one of the chapters of my forthcoming book, I try to trace these shifts in attitude, and I do so with a lens on thinking about what conversion meant and how it operated over the course of the 16th and into the early 17th century. Moriscos, these communities pre-conversion, often known as mudejars, had a degree of royal protection as religious minorities, and their legal status changed at the point of their baptism. Upon conversion, they become Catholics. This means many things. Their legal and social structures, called aljamas, cease to formally exist. 
They have a different taxing structure. They're no longer required to pay the exact same taxes as they were before. They fall under the jurisdiction of Christian judges in different ways than they did before. That's oversimplifying a bit, but just to kind of sketch a broad outline of how these things change. But yet in the early decades of the 16th century, when I'm reading papers of state, religious records, local records of many kinds, including legal records, municipal papers, still using records of inquisition and the sources that we traditionally used to look at religious minorities, but trying to take a broader look. You can still see this sense of hope in conversion in the early decades. And so there's this sense of leaving time for generations to pass, hope in children, which is also very important still at the end of the 16th century in determining what to do with Morisco populations, and a sense that parish Priests in Valladolid say things in visitation records like, while we might not be able to save those who are already elderly, there's still hope for those who are young and those yet to be born. So this kind of language of hope around conversion certainly exists. And I think you're totally right that the rebellion and war in 1568 to 1570 is a big turning point, not only because of this mass relocation, so a change in the logistical layout of Morisco populations around Iberia, but because there were political and religious motivations for that deportation. So doubts of their sincerity and this idea that they can be forced to assimilate if pushed into old Christian communities across Castile, breaking up this dense, sometimes majority Morisco population in the south. But the political motivations for that deportation were really important too. This idea that the Moriscos were potentially basically a fifth column, like allies to the Ottoman Empire, who are enemies of Habsburg Spain at this time. There's multiple motivations for all of these events. But ultimately, we have a situation where, again, 80,000 Moriscos are deported. And then an unknown number, but somewhere in the thousands, are captured and enslaved during and after this war. Okay, so I want to ask you what justification is used for their enslavement. Because if they are, as you've just said, technically baptised Catholics, and legal and military tradition only allow the capture and enslavement, I think, of non-Christian enemies, is it those doubts about their faith that is underpinning that decision to enslave them? Absolutely. And this was something that I had to go back and really learn about, because I first came across these cases of enslaved Moriscos when I was in the archive. I was at the archive of the Royal Chancery Court of Idalid, the Royal Chancery Court being the place where so many of these lawsuits took place. And of course, there is some wonderful scholarship on all of these events, some really fascinating cases written by historians like Aurelia Martin Cáceres on enslavement and Spanish children. But it hadn't yet come across my desk. It wasn't something I was really familiar with other than the broad outlines. And so when I first came across these lawsuits of people litigating for their freedom after having been enslaved, that's the point when I had to go back and really understand how this was possible. Because the question you just posed was the first thing in my mind as well. Wasn't this a problem? These were baptized Catholics. And indeed, this was a real problem for contemporaries as well. A problem for the monarchy, something that was debated by jurists and theologians. And it was really about the moral and legal implications of this act, allowing the legal enslavement of baptized Catholics. So after all of this debate, ultimately, the conclusion is that the Moriscos of Granada could be enslaved. And as I point out in my article, there's many voices calling for the fact that they ought to be enslaved as well. Ultimately, the idea was that this could be deemed a just war, that they were captives of a just war, and that the rebellion was what was important here, that the fact they were Catholics was kind of somehow made null and void throughout these debates. Ultimately, they were permitted to be enslaved, but it wasn't as simple as that. It wasn't a cut and dry question of, yes, 
we can allow Granada and Moriscos to be enslaved. And the main catching point here was the question of children. In 1572, two years after the Second Granadan War ended, as I understand it, Philip II passes this series of rules governing the Moriscos, including those who've been taken as prisoners of war and enslaved. So perhaps you could describe those rules, including how they relate to children. And do we know how many Moriscos were affected by them? So we don't actually have a sense of the total number of people enslaved. And I would love eventually, with more scholarship on this topic, to be able to get a better sense of how many court cases there were. So you're right. In 1572, King Philip II issued a number of laws regarding the deported Moriscos from Granada. The one that's really important for our question here is that which has to do with enslaved children. His Council of Ecclesiastical Authorities actually had consulted and deemed that Morisco children could be considered complicit with their parents' rebellion. And so initially there was this idea that it was going to be allowed to keep these children enslaved. But his law issued in July of 1572 makes the enslavement and capture of Morisco children illegal. I did find some evidence that this law may have been in effect or issued in some way during the war, but the official publication of the order comes in the summer of 1572, after which many Morisco children had already been enslaved. And so this law goes into effect after the fact for many of these cases. It is announced and observed across the kingdoms. There isn't really any case to be made for the fact that people wouldn't be aware of this law. What that means is that it would be read in public squares, it would be known by public officials, local city councils, and there were actually procurators and representatives whose job it was to enforce this and register the arrival of deported moriscos in each town and place. So there's a real knowledge and implementation of this law. And indeed, it comes to be the centerpiece for so many of these lawsuits. And it might be helpful to clarify here, do we have a sense of what the law regarded as a child? Yeah, absolutely. So this was another thing that was really interesting for me to learn in the course of this research is that the age of majority or minority is really a relative concept at this time, meaning that there isn't you know, a single date at which a person becomes legally an adult or is legally considered to be a child. And so in this case, it was defined as boys under the age of 10 and a half and girls under the age of nine and a half. And there was a later age for their majority, at which time they could come out of the service of the old Christian households in which they were kept. In this case, it was the age of 20. Now, the law relating to enslaved Morisco children provides them with legal representation to help secure their manumission. And so the first question that comes to my mind is, given that Philip has passed a law saying that these children should be freed. Why was a court case required to win a child's manumission? Yeah, there's a lot of financial implications involved here. So on the one hand, it might be that slave owners were not willing to simply manumit the people that they had in their possession. On the other hand, it might be that they needed a paper trail in order to prove that they had manumitted the people they had kept in slave in order to ask for compensation for their financial losses. So that part of the story can be kind of hard to read. <laughs> it can be hard to see these lives, these massive acts of violence toward any human, but especially when we're talking about extremely young children, reduced to a question of 
finances and legal paperwork. And so obviously, while there's so many other dimensions of these stories that can be really heart-wrenching, that was, as a researcher, as a scholar, one of the parts where I felt the humanity of the people affected almost disappeared from the page the most. I had that question myself partway through some of these. You know, I was thinking, am I finding the cases where we had the worst of the worst, the slave owners who absolutely refused to comply and had to have their arm twisted, so to say? Or is it that these things were handled differently in different legal jurisdictions? Because oftentimes these would come before local councils, maybe a local magistrate, a local judge, before going on to an appellate court like the Royal Chancery Court of Lead. And then I started to realize that there were many overlapping motivations for needing this paper trail, different claims at some points. For example, in really complicated cases where right before a sale of a person goes through, one party dies. And then there's legal questions about payments and ownership. And so, again, we get mired down into all these questions of legal barriers and financial questions and away from the stories of the children themselves. But it's a good reminder of how complicated and bureaucratic and slow these processes could be. Some of the court cases themselves ran for years. And so the procurators you mentioned become really important. There's a number of positions of representatives and procurators and lawyers involved in these cases. Many of the cases look quite different depending on who's involved. And so you might have family members of the enslaved children who are involved, who are initiating the lawsuit presenting the initial demanda or demand before the court, who are rallying funds to be able to pay for these expensive lawsuits, or perhaps pleading poverty and allowing the case to be one de pobres or a poverty suit. And so they rely on a number of different kinds of representatives and procurators. And one that I find extremely fascinating is a man who held this position for I think at least 15 years in Vitalid, based on the dates of the court cases that I've located. And in many of these, his title is given as Defender of the Moriscos, which is really a fascinating title. He's often called, you know, a representative, but this word defender comes up as well. His name was Galaz de Burgos, and he was a city councillor in the town of Valladolid. He obviously held many positions in that regard and had a high status in the city. He also seemed to employ and also hold as a slave various Moriscos in his household. And he represented many of these Moriscos who were enslaved when their cases came before Vitalid courts. So you've suggested that in some cases, families might initiate the petition for a trial. Were there other ways in which a case might come to court? Could the Crown, for example, work proactively to identify enslaved Morisco children and summon the masters to court? How else did it start? This is one of those questions, as so many times that as historians, we have to unfortunately say, I think so. <laughs> I, in this article, even talk about the silences. Like, what about the cases of people enslaved as children who were never discovered? What about those who maybe were manumitted without any legal paperwork? But for the most part, I think that there are enough cases where we can see how they begin. And so on the one hand, representatives like Galas de Burgos, the defender of the Moriscos, was also tasked with keeping registers and records of all of the Moriscos deported and resettled within the jurisdiction of Valladolid. He was tasked with making regular rounds to verify that all the rules and points of order were being observed. And one of those was this question of making sure to liberate any Moriscos enslaved as children. I believe that the role of Morisco families is extremely important, partly because we want to consider, like you've asked, how these lawsuits operated, how they came to be, and so that we can understand the ties of family that lay behind them. 
But on the other hand, because the role of families was so important in what happened after manumission. So there are examples of the litigants who initiate the lawsuits being the mothers of people enslaved at very young ages. The case that I start the article with of Juan and Lucas de Almude, two young brothers who were enslaved as children in the kingdom of Granada, their lawsuit was initiated by their brother. And we can read his words in the demanda that initiated their lawsuit. And we see the involvement of Morisco relatives in their lives after slavery as well. One point that I found extremely illuminating for thinking about the lives of captured and enslaved Moriscos in this region was to think about these lawsuits in the context of a census that was taken in 1583 in Valladolid. This particular census counted Moriscos who had been enslaved and so allowed me to put together a few more pieces of the puzzle of their lives. And in some cases, I can see Moriscos living there who had been manumitted, in some cases, those who were still in litigation, and to see that some of them married other Granada Moriscos and some of them made lives in Valladolid. From biblical fame to its fabled great walls, Babylon was home to kings, conquerors, and wonders of the ancient world. But what do we actually know about this legendary city? And how much is still shrouded in mystery? Join me, Tristan Hughes, every Sunday throughout May on the Ancients as we delve into the story of Babylon. We'll be covering topics varying from the King Nebuchadnezzar II and how he forged a massive Babylonian empire. We'll be exploring the mystery of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, looking at world-renowned objects such as the Cyrus Cylinder, and also looking at Babylon in the aftermath of one of the most well-known conquerors in the whole of history, Babylon after Alexander the Great. That's all to come this May on The Ancients, every Sunday. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is After Dark. Myths, misdeeds, and the paranormal. The podcast that takes you to the shadiest corners of the past, unpicking history's spookiest, strangest, and most sinister stories. I'm Maddie Pelling. And I'm Anthony Delaney. Join us every Monday and Thursday, and we'll take a look at the darker side of history, from haunted pubs to Houdini, to witch trials and arsenic-laced breakfasts. Follow After Dark, Myths, Misdeeds, and the Paranormal, wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit.
stories are immensely moving. We're dealing with very young children, mothers, brothers involved in trying to fight for their freedom. It must be quite challenging material to work with. It is, yeah. And I think I have a lot of learning to do still. I mean, this is an article I wrote a few years ago, but a topic that I want to continue working on. And there are scholars working on the question of slavery, history, memory, silence, violence. There's so much reading out there for me to do. But even from the first moment I started working with these sources, when I first encountered them in the archive, it's impossible to escape just your own emotion in dealing with them. It was something that I didn't expect to find. I was in that archive to find related documents and didn't know I was picking up a lawsuit that had to do with a very young child. So to illustrate what I mean, one of the first cases I read had to do with a Morisca young girl named Ursula. When she was enslaved, she was only five or six years old. Now, how do we evidence the young age of these people? Well, for one, you might think to go to parish records. You might think that as a historian, people at the time trying to prove age in lawsuit also would have loved to have recourse to those records, but so many parish records were destroyed during the war in Granada. And of course, distance and other logistics sometimes made it impossible to have paper to verify the age of a young person. Sometimes witness testimony was used. In this case, for Ursula's case, they used as evidence of her age the fact that she was so small that she had to be carried in the arms of her captors through most of the journey. In other cases, people had notarized documents proving age, again, witness testimony of various kinds. And this is where family became really important as well. If they could testify that a person was of a certain age and that was combined with other convincing evidence, their testimony could be really important. And I gather that you found evidence of some slave owners who were brutal towards Morisco children. Was the violence intended to deter them from pursuing their freedom? These stories have so much violence within them and it's impossible to know the extent of their experiences. When the violence is recorded within the documentation of the lawsuit, it often has to do very much with the reasons that you mentioned. If a person's being held back from attending court. And so there are examples that show that violence, somebody being kept in chains and being harmed, and therefore their lawyers bringing that up in court, that this person is being held back from attending their own lawsuit, or they're being treated so brutally that there's a request put in front of the judge for them to be put in basically a different home for the duration of the trial in order for them to be protected and have some legal oversight over the case. So the brutality and violence that they faced as enslaved peoples is really only partially in view in these lawsuits, it's brutal enough for us to extend our imagination toward how much worse it could have been, but only some of it's on the page. Your work has actually reminded me a lot of the work by people like Marissa Fuentes, thinking about slavery and violence in places like Barbados. I mean, there's so much sort of rethinking how one approaches this historiography these days. Do we know if slave owners lost their case, do they have a right to appeal? And on what grounds? Was the court process meant to be punitive for masters? Slave owners certainly had a right to appeal. And many of the cases that I find at the Chancery Court, which function as a higher court and a court of appeal, were there for exactly that reason. Again, the question of when people were pursuing paperwork in order to make financial claims comes into question here, as opposed to the motive of basically fighting the verdict and saying, no, I get to keep this person. I'm their rightful owner. Some of the slave owners even make the claim that they have invested so much money in the raising and upkeep of this person that they are due the verdict that they want. It's brutal. 
The way appeals work is also interesting to me. And this is, again, I'm going to make the appeal for other people to do this kind of work, because as with so many things with legal histories and with histories of moriscos, I can envision this larger puzzle that extends out across the Spanish kingdoms. These things could be so different in different towns and cities. Contemporaries note how the city was just flooded with lawyers and notaries and how there was just constant litigation, not just about these cases of enslaved Morisco children, but of every kind of lawsuit you can imagine. And scholars like Richard Kagan have done a really great job of describing this legal culture of early modern Spain, this idea that early modern Iberians were extremely litigious and that they were kind of always suing each other and going to court. And so there's a lot of ways to pick up on social histories and things beyond just legal history within these lawsuits. But I would say that the question of how and when people appealed and the exact way that these things played out locally in like local societies, much remains to be seen. And again, there's been some Spanish scholarship on the question of Morisco slavery and litigation, but there's still a lot of corners of the kingdoms where we need to pick up these stories and tie them together. I'd also love to pick up on what you mentioned of Marisa Fuente's amazing book, Dispossessed Lives. She's one of the scholars that I would know, I mean, among others, who are doing really amazing scholarship where we can get to the stories of individuals, which is an incredible thing when you think about how much is lost and fragmentary in the historical record. And I think not only on building those stories, but of paving new paths for how we do our scholarship and how we think historically about these questions. I'm struck by everything you've said about the difficulty of knowing numbers and the practical problems around the paperwork surviving and the sense that maybe there are cases that are not making it to the desks of modern scholars. But at the time, apart from court, were there any other routes to freedom for Morisco children? The main route to freedom for Moriscos enslaved as children was this kind of litigation, was basically using the point made in Philip II's 1572 law, making their capture and enslavement illegal. And really, if you could prove the age of the child in court, although sometimes the person was no longer a child by the time the lawsuit came to be, but if you could prove their age at captivity, you could more or less have them manumitted from slavery. There were other routes to freedom. And it's interesting to think about how some Morisco adults who had been captured during the war or just after the war found their way to freedom. The two main routes here are legal manumission and ransoming. And so by legal manumission, we do find some enslaved peoples manumitted in wills or in acts of charity. And this wasn't always an immediate thing. You could find notarial records, basically any record that had to be seen and officiated by a notary, where people are manumitted perhaps after a certain amount of time in service or in a person's will, basically saying, after I'm gone, you can be given your legal freedom, sometimes tying that person's enslaved status to their relatives saying, you're going to have to go serve in my sister's household for four years before you're made free. You know, there are other paths to freedom. Ransoming is extremely interesting to me. And I only have a few cases that I use for this particular project, but would like to know more. There are various historical contexts to ransoming that are important here, both in the pre-modern European world of ransoming of slaves. There's some great scholarship on this in terms of the early modern Mediterranean, but also the financial assistance of not enslaved Granada Moriscos. So Moriscos from Granada who were and remained free was extremely important. It was really central to the liberation of those Granada Moriscos who were freed, manumitted as adults. 
There are various precedents that are important here. Communal ransoming of enslaved individuals was common in early modern Europe. So we can look to cases of religious orders or confraternities or even other lay organizations where people negotiated and paid for the ransoming of individuals who were enslaved. And then there's another way we could look at it, which is that ransom payments made by Granada and Moriscos may have also been attempts to comply with Islamic laws regarding charity or familial support. And so while we can find evidence of this, for example, in you know late medieval Valencia, where there's communities who liberated mudejars or even foreign Muslims who were enslaved. So I think it's worth considering that Granada and Moriscos may have continued to identify with the Muslim community and to practice these Islamic forms of solidarity. Whether or not we can pin down what their motivations were, the participation of Granada Moriscos in the ransoming and manumitting of Moriscos enslaved as adults was important. But in terms of those captured and made slaves as children, it's really these lawsuits that's their central mechanism for finding freedom. Do we know what happened to a child or an adult as they might have been by then following manumission? So this is a really important point where we can really dig deeper into what the law meant in 1572. When people through the mechanism of these lawsuits were manumitted, they found legal freedom, but very limited freedom. And so the royal order intended that those who were freed through the courts actually remain in the households of those who enslaved them, or at least in the households of old Christians, Catholic families, as servants, legally free, but still working as servants until they reach the age of majority. So again, in this case, that was the age of 20. So for the child who is now legally free, as far as they're concerned, the situation is unchanged. I think so, yes. And I think that a lot of these people would have remained either in the houses where they had been kept as slaves or in the custody of other old Christian Catholic families. Old Christian, I should say, meaning those Catholics who had no known Jewish or Muslim heritage. There's a really specific and stated intention here. With the king's order, he intended that they be made free, but also that they be raised as Christians. If we go to the wording of the order issued by the king in 1572, we can say that he states, because our wish is that they be better instructed and taught, and raised in Christianity, they may not stay or be in the power of their parents. And so he orders that local justices either leave or place these manumitted youths in the power of good ecclesiastical people or secular people who will raise and teach them. And so the idea is that they remain there as servants, which is really an important issue of social control, and that this also points and aims at some form of conversion. And so again, legal but limited freedom aiming to raise these children who at the time were understood to be the children of rebels and of, of potential heretics as Christians. And this is an act of violent family separation that has a specific political intent. So that mother who had travelled to Walidoli is not going to get those children after that, even if they're freed. That doesn't mean she gets to live with them Probably not. And unfortunately, with that case and so many others, the paper trail ends, or at least what I found so far, and I'm certainly going to keep looking next time I'm in the archives, what was supposed to happen was that no, they would not be returned to her. I do find evidence of ways that Moriscos found each other after deportation in so many ways. So one example, and again, I don't mean to paint this as what would happen in most cases, but I think it's important to think about how many outcomes there could be. I found a case of a mother and daughter who were both enslaved in the same household. 
And there seems to have been some court case for the daughter. Again, I don't have all the paperwork for that, but the daughter to have been legally manumitted. She, of course, would have stayed in that household. And so when the mother found a way to be ransomed and have her freedom given, the paperwork for her legal freedom said that her daughter would also leave that household. And so, again, the importance of the local Granada Morisco community in paying for and helping to negotiate that act of manumission through ransoming and it being combined in some way, not necessarily always apparent to us on the legal record that we have left, but combined in some way to assure that that mother and daughter could both leave not only their status as slaves, but to leave their place as servants in that household. I also have in that 1583 census, I mentioned a case of an entire family that had been enslaved that then after slavery, after their legal freedom, were able to stay together. So I certainly don't mean to paint any kind of a happy ending for this story. I just think it's important to remember all the ways that people found a way to survive and found a way to be together. And I don't believe that most of these stories had a completely rosy ending, but it's more complex than what the law of the king intended as the final chapter in their lives. Is it possible to trace any freed Moriscos long after their court cases to know if they assimilated into Catholic life as Philip was hoping, or if they returned to their Islamic heritage? Do we know, in other words, if social integration was possible? The question, is social integration possible, is a really big one. And it's not just one that we're asking now, looking back on the past, but I think it's at the center of what we call this Morisco problem. The idea of the Morisco question or the Morisco problem, this is a historiographical term, but also a contemporary debate over the place and position and assimilation of the descendants of these converts. There are so many dimensions to this question, the theological dimensions of the validity of baptism and whether or not people who maybe we can't trust them, should they receive the Eucharist? Who should be monitoring them and how? What evidence can you provide to show that somebody's converted, sincerely converted? Can evidence of change be trusted? I mean, it's a really dynamic and complex question and one that I can see contemporaries debating, and it allows us to get at the heart of belonging and exclusion in the 16th century Spanish world. And just as an aside, this isn't something that just had to do with Moriscos in this one town. This is a question that not only Spanish rulers, but society at large was thinking about, especially as the Spanish empire grew and began to encompass more kinds of people enslaved, people converted and conquered across the world in this global Spanish empire. And so the question of the boundaries of belonging and exclusion were really tied up in these processes of transformation and conversion, not only religious conversion as a single act of baptism, but conversion in a broader sense and as a long-term process that was one that wasn't only spiritual, like to determine whether or not Moriscos had converted as individuals or as a collective you would have to look for certain things like were they attending church and did they know their prayers? And parish priests would record these things in visitation records and submit them to the Spanish Inquisition. But there's also so many other aspects of their lives that were under scrutiny. And so the social aspects of how they lived, who they married, and in what neighborhood they lived, what language did they speak? They're supposed to speak Castilian Spanish and not Arabic. And in Valladolid, that's not a problem, but those from Granada might still be speaking Arabic. Moriscos had to be seen eating pork and drinking wine to prove that they were no longer adhering to Islamic dietary requirements. Moriscos had to kind of prove themselves in all of these ways. And this, again, points to that 
what I said earlier about the regional differences that were so important. The final thing I'd mention in determining how moriscos were identified was that there was a genealogical consideration. The distinction between old and new Christians requires considering this important concept, which is purity of blood, or in Spanish, limpieza de sangre. Old Christians were considered to have this limpieza de sangre, while new Christian conversos and moriscos were believed to be tainted in the language of these records by the Jewish or Muslim blood of their forebears. This difference between old and new Christians was understood to be measured by blood and descent. And blood purity was this really important idea in late medieval and early modern Spanish kingdoms, this foundational concept in the categorization of converted peoples. So it's not one that I see coming up in the legal paperwork for these specific cases, these lawsuits that have to do with captured Morisco children, but it's certainly important for understanding the broader history of how Moriscos were identified in this era. The last thing I want to ask you is about the wider ramifications of Philip's law. I know from the work of Caroline Dodds-Pennock, among other people, that We've got examples of indigenous people who had been enslaved and taken to Spain and who worked to negotiate their freedom. So there's a sense that there's potentially ramifications for other enslaved people in the Spanish Empire more broadly, perhaps. And I'm also aware that there's a sense that there may have been a positive effect on Philip's relationship with the Ottoman Empire. Perhaps not. Perhaps the manumission of a handful of children is not considered to be of great consequence. So I just wonder, do we have a sense beyond these very important, very moving stories of individuals, whether there are broader kind of consequences of this law? Those are really important questions, and I don't really have a full answer for you. I think, though, that it highlights how important it is to think about these cases and about Morisco histories in general in the larger, wider context of all of the different populations that were conquered, converted, enslaved, and then also responded to the wider Spanish empire. So an increasing number of people who litigated and petitioned and claimed status and who had these experiences that you're right, there are so many parallels we can draw. I don't have a sense of how this set of laws in 1572 builds into the larger story of the legal framework between you know, Habsburg Spain and the Ottoman empire. But I think it's great to have that question come up and points to further future avenues for research. Well, thank you so much for introducing us to these stories. I have to say that there were moments through what you were saying that I was finding myself sort of very moved, really kind of repressing tears at hearing the stories of these children. And it is an amazing light that you are shining on this one area of history that brings these stories to life. And obviously, the dead are dead and we can do nothing for them. But there is a sense somehow in the retelling of these stories that we're contributing in a way to justice. And I think that the work you're doing is immensely important and I'm very grateful you shared it with us. It's extremely important to be creative in our thinking, to push back on the narratives that are still so often dominated by bodies like the Spanish Inquisition or the Catholic Church in framing how we understand societies in the past. So I'm glad to bring these really important and you're right emotional stories to a wider audience and thank you so much for having me on your podcast it's been great to have this conversation with you and thanks to my producer rob weinberg my researcher esther arnott and joseph knight who edited this episode 
And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. We're always eager to hear your suggestions for podcast subjects. So drop me a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on Twitter at notjusttudors. Also, if you're in need of an extra hit between podcasts, do sign up to our newsletter, Tudor Tuesday. Details of how to do that are in the notes below this podcast. And please rate, rank, bestow multiple stars and comment on this podcast wherever you listen, including on Spotify. It really helps more people find not just the Tudors. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.